1: We are talking about dogs, and right now we're going to talk to Maya Wehhas. She's a science writer for National Geographic. dot com, and she's been writing about the research about dogs. So, I mean, in an umbrella sense, uh, Maya Wehhas. There's kind of what we've always been told, which is, I mean, dog owners, you're a dog owner, I'm a dog owner, um, you know, we think that our dogs know things and think things and that our dogs are very aware of our moods and our dogs know if it's going to be a good day or a bad day. And science has, until recently, tended to come back uh, at us with, you're anthropomorphizing. In the the dog is a, a different kind of organism, it, and it's mainly interested, it's interested in four or five things, but not at the level that you're thinking about. And suddenly we have a wave of research that you've been reporting on that suggests, oh, no, maybe we were right all along. So do you want to mention in particular some of the recent findings about what dogs do and don't know?
2: You know, in general, dogs present uh, a very unique opportunity for us to look at a species that has evolved very closely along with us. And it's sometimes hard to differentiate those, like when you're anthropomorphizing versus, you know, true intentions behind their actions. But dogs are extremely sensitive to our cues, you know, our emotions. I think a lot of people responded to my Story on Facebook with anecdotes about, you know, well, I was having, you know, a really bad day or something like that, and the dogs seem to pick up on it and provide comfort during those periods of time. They have evolved because, um, in part, based off of our uh, interactions with them and were kind of their evolutionary pressures. And so some of these more recent studies that I covered in this article have, there are two that I, I discussed, and one is about social eavesdropping. And so this is kind of the, the way I was kind of describing it is like people watching. You You see an interaction of people in front of you and kind of assessing general categories of oh that was good that person is nice or that was not a very good that person was unhelpful or mean and it's something that's actually been found in a fair few animals but dogs kind of hadn't really joined the group at this point so this most recent study actually suggests that they do and that they can assess those types of interactions now of course it's again and a lot of the experts I spoke to caution that it's, it's really hard to kind of judge motivation. But in this study, uh, they, they were looking at several people that were trying to accomplish a task. In one interaction, they had someone actually help, and in the other, the, the person um, just turned away when they, they requested for help. And the dogs seemed to shun the person that did not help in the interaction. Which is, you know, it really brings up the question. Okay, do they can they tell when someone's uh, mean and directly avoid that person, or can they actually tell a, a positive interaction?
1: So the the read um, that the, the dogs are making is on their owners, right? The dogs are watching this person, other person interact interact with their owners, and trying to um, and and apparently having some kind of sense of whether this person is being mean to their owners or nice to their owners. Um, One question that would be interesting, I I don't know how far into this research they've gotten – but I mean we know that animals can read body language at an unbelievably subtle level I mean that was the whole, yeah. was the whole lesson of the clever Hans fallacy right that the horse actually uh-huh. could see all kinds of subtle body cues that the, the trainer wasn't aware that he was giving so there's body language obviously also dogs are just keenly I mean they have great senses of smell we may be releasing all kinds of hormones in an interaction I know like if Betsy Kaplan our producer is screaming at me uh, which happens uh-huh. frequently I, I'm sure I'm releasing all kinds of you know negative sort of Fear based hormones. Maybe the dog's sensing that. Have they sort of tried to control for some of those variables to try to figure out what, what the dog is reacting to? If the dog, in fact, can notice that a social interaction's going bad for the owner?
2: Certainly, yeah. I mean, and that's a very good question. And most of the experts that I spoke to about this paper had the same concern because we do give very subtle cues. Uh, one of the things that they, this group, did to control for that was that they made sure that there was no eye contact made with the dog because generally um, you can you can communicate a lot through just looking at their eyes. They also did do a control group where the owner just struggled. Um, with the container and didn't actually turn to the second person to request help um, and just you know control Struggle with the container and then put it down and that was the end of the interaction Of course, we we do need more work to really be able to tell um, and to figure out exactly what they're responding to because some of the things You mentioned kind of those subtle like whatever your your body's releasing the pheromones or whatnot are are hard things to control for and so it's It's difficult to tell exactly motivation, but, you know, one of the experts I, I spoke with did say that it, it really brings up the, the question of whether they can categorize these, these cooperative or non-cooperative interactions without those direct emotional cues, and it really does call for more research to be able to say definitively whether or not that's the case.
1: All right, so um so we've got that um, and in th- well, we should say that in, and you uh, referenced this and linked to this uh, in your um, in your coverage of this too I mean uh, there's been other research that does indicate that dogs can read facial expressions, which is another thing that we might have been told ten years ago was unlikely that a dog could actually look at your face and understand what the w- the the configuration of the features on your face meant, so that's one of the things you mentioned they have to control for right if you're smiling, frowning, grimacing, wincing. Uh, the dog may may you pick that up.
2: Oh, definitely. And I and I believe that the in part part of what they tried to control for was not to keep a, a blank kind of expression. I, and, you know, it's only <laughs> only you can only do that so effectively. But, yes, facial expressions are important as well.
1: Which leads to one of the other uh, forms of research that you looked at. Uh, we're talking to Maya Wei Haas, a science writer for National Um You looked at what's called the gaze following. Uh, explain the gaze following study.
2: Yeah, so gaze following is another one of those uh, almost instinctual things for us that actually we see in a lot of different animals, particularly social animals, chimps, or um, goats even if you look in one direction and you can try this look in one direction and see how many people if you're in a big group will follow your your glance into a, in a random direction and it's just um, an instinctual uh, reaction for us because it's kind of that curiosity and it can signal us to oh my gosh I'm about to get hit by a car or for an animal it could be you know there's a predator in that direction but it could also be you know there's something good to eat over there you know it has Long been said that dogs actually don't do this, and it was it was kind of confusing. It, it, there seemed to be something missing. Um, the author of the study, Lisa Wallace, actually said, "Like we know they should do it, we just weren't entirely sure why. Um, whether it was some type of habituation, like you know, we were we look at a lot of things during the day that could be very boring to a dog, you know, computer screens and." cell phones and whatnot and so at some point perhaps they just stop looking because they get bored of what we're doing and so this was among other hypotheses that they were testing and what they actually found was the thing that most influenced this was obedience training Mm -hmm. which if you think about it one of the first things you do when you start trying to teach your dog to uh, behave or even when you first get your dog is you want them to recognize their name and you want them to focus on your face and so, you know, you you say their name, you tell them to watch, and you're you're training for eye contact. And so they're not you. We've actually trained them out of the doing gaze following because they will look at your face and focus on you rather than look in the directions you'll look. But they found that untrained dogs will follow view off into distant space. Um, they were actually looking at like a door in their room, and the dogs and will follow their their gaze into the door. Um, as long as they didn't have much obedience training. Uh, and what was even more interesting, actually, and I, and I believe the author said it didn't make it into the paper, but the dogs, the dogs will actually do what they call as checkbacks or double looking. So if you're looking at the door, the dog will look at the door and then look back at you and look back at the door and try. It's kind of like the dog saying, "Oh, what are you looking at? Like, what's? I know something's going on. Why are you staring at the door?"
1: And so, and that that sort of gets to the kind of primacy of that relationship, right? The dog, the dog has substituted the owner for a lot of other cues that that a wild animal might be paying attention to. The dogs learn to pay attention Mm -hmm. to the owner. And it kind of fits with, and this isn't so much in your article, but it's been much publicized, this other piece of so-called gaze research, which is that, that owners and dogs, when they gaze at one another... Uh, well, we're not surprised to find out that that oxytocin, uh-huh. the so-called cuddle ho- hormone, is released in us, but uh, but it's also been it's in the dogs too, right?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. There have been all, there were several recent studies that were uh, covered that that oxytocin loop that that it's it's the same reaction that mothers have when they stare at their babies. And it's somehow dogs have hijacked this uh, evolutionary kind of trait that makes us really want to continue it, it, uh, to take care of them and, you know, love them. Um, and, you know, actually one of the experts I was speaking to said that it, it, this training, the fact that we can train them out of some of these, these instincts can explain a lot of uh, other Studies that we've done with them because sometimes dogs are extremely hard to work with there are a lot of variables that we don't know about and she was saying even like some of the studies it could explain their differences with chimps sometimes because you know chimps uh, you don't really want to sit there and gaze into the eyes of a chimp. Um, there's not. You don't get any benefit from that. But when we look at our dogs, we do want to continue to look at them in part because of the oxytocin loop.
1: Um, in your article, you talk about an upcoming study. There's an old uh, saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. So are we going to find out more about that?
2: Yeah, this, the results of that study hopefully will be published soon, I believe. Uh, it's kind of, you know, based on some other animals and also humans. As humans age, it gets harder for us to learn new tasks um, as our short-term memory declines. And um, so, you know, it's the rate that we actually acquire new tasks, is, it takes a much longer time. Uh, and so for dogs, we don't actually know. Um, some studies have suggested that perhaps that is the case, but uh, they're trying to dig a little bit more into that. And, you know, they also very little is known about their long-term memories. So their short-term memories are very short. I believe it's something like two minutes that they they don't remember a lot from moment to moment, which is actually, when I told my husband about this, he was really surprised because our dog, Oscar, like, he he always seems to have a really good Memory, but it's not necessarily his short term. It seems to be his long term memory because, like, right now we live. In different cities, and so I'll only see him every month or every couple months. But every time I see him, he, you know, like tries to wiggle out of the car before he can really we can even get the door open as soon as he spots me. So it's he seems to have a long-term memory. So I would be surprised if they found that (laughs) dogs didn't have much of a long-term memory either. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with.
1: My recently deceased dog Ralph would recognize. I mean, did on at least one occasion recognize somebody he hadn't seen in maybe two or three years uh so yeah, the long-term memory is there and there was just no question that that he was recognizing at least something uh, about that person i was going to ask you that so you have a dog you have a dog named oscar you're a science writer but you're a dog owner too does all of this research make you think differently about oscar are you starting to think of oscar as a, a more complex organism than you used to
2: yeah, you know, I my dog, I love him to death, and I, we often kind of would joke about how stupid he was, but I, the more that I do research and the more that, you know, we interact and we've been trying to work to train him and everything, the more I think he's not so stupid that he's selectively dumb <laughs> or just like pretends to be dumb when he doesn't feel like you're paying attention to us. They're amazing creatures. They, they really are. They not only have extreme intelligence, but they also have this domesticated uh, desire to, to seek our approval and to... Kind of respond to our every need and whim and and it's just it creates this lasting bond that is uh pretty amazing It's you know he's one of our family and and there have been actually other studies that have shown that. Um, I believe it's mothers. The brain, their brain activity when they look at pictures of their own dog is very similar to when they look at pictures of their own children, which is just like they're they're one of our family. And so, you know, the more I find, the more it it. Uh, I don't know if it changes exactly how I interact with him, but you know, I I definitely respect their intelligence so much more. It's very
1: impressive. Uh, As a dog owner, I agree. Uh, Maya (laughs) Wejas, great to talk to you, science writer for NationalGeographic.com with the article, Dogs are Even More Like Us Than We Thought. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Thank you.
1: When we come back, we'll be talking with a Yale psychologist who studies canine cognition and to our own Teresa Kramer about how she and her dog, Maybell became Ivy League students. You just heard a segment about some of the research that's being done into canine cognition. Well, some of that research is being done very nearby, uh, and that uh, in particular means the Yale Canine Cognition Center. Joining us right now is Laurie Santos, a professor of psychology at Yale and director of the Yale Canine Cognition Center. Also with us in the studio, this is all just by happenstance, but we're recording this interview on a Friday, and it turns out that one of our regular guests on Fridays, or semi regular guests on Fridays, Teresa Kramer, had uh, the experience of having her dog be studied. Uh, her dog, Maybell, has been studied by the uh, Cognition Center and I think uh, is going on to do further graduate work with the Canine Cognition <laughs> Center. But So, Laurie Santos, first of all, tell us why there is such a thing as the Yale Canine Cognition Center. How, how did such a thing come to be?
3: Well, we started the Yale Canine Cognition Center about two years ago, and the purpose of the center is really to study what's going on in the dog's mind. And we do that for two reasons. One is, we think dogs are a really cool model for studying human cognition. Um, obviously, humans are special, right? We have radio shows. There's no doggy NPR that they're listening to, right? We're working it on raises, it. We're working on it. mean, it raises this question of, you know, what is it about the human mind that's special, that's unique? And dogs are a pretty good model in part because they grow up in the same environments that we do, right? They hear language. They grow up with all this artifact technology in their homes. The question is, you know, how do they end up like dogs and how do we end up like us? Um, The second reason for studying canine cognition, though, is just like – We're interested in dogs for dog's sake. I mean, they live in our homes. We love them, right? We Mm. just kind of want to know what makes them tick. And really the best way to study that is to set up little scientific studies, little problems for the dogs to do, and try to see how they solve them. Really look at the the exact strategies that dogs are using to make sense of their world.
1: And, I mean, I think another part of this would be there really is no other animal. I suppose maybe cats are in that category and then at times other kinds of working animals, but there's no – more widespread instance of another species trying to communicate with us and us trying to communicate with. In other words, there's just so much information that's being exchanged all the time. But what we really don't know is how much of the information we put out is being received and whether or not we're receiving the information that we think we're receiving from this animal. I mean, the dog is at a unique apex there, I think.
3: That's exactly right. I mean, they are evolutionary masters of living in the same world with us and cooperating with us and working with us and so on. Um, I mean, this is how they evolved from their wolf ancestors, right, to, to kind of be with us. That said, we don't really know that much about how they do that, right? Clearly, they do it quite well, but really understanding how they learn from us, what information they're picking up on, and how we can best relate to them, I think, are really important questions.
1: All right. So I want to talk about some of the specific studies. I mean, one of the other things that the Yale Cog- uh, Canine Cognition Center has been able to do is study Teresa Kramer. We need more information about <laughs> Teresa Kramer. Is she dangerous? Is she like us? <laughs> um, so when you brought your dog, Maybell down there, this is actually an experiment Lori really wanted to talk about anyway. So I'm, but I'm going to have you describe what you saw ha- happen and mm-hmm. then have Lori explain more of the context of it. So tell us about the experiment that you did that involved you and a book and your dog.
4: Okay, well, it wasn't me in the book. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's different. I think I was in the control group where there were two other people in the room, two experimenters. One had a book. She read it for about, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute, something like that. And she leaves the room and then she comes back and certain things can happen. She can either put that book down on the ground and then someone comes in from outside and takes that book. In another sort of iteration of this, I would have been the one with the book and someone would have come in and stolen my book. And the goal, I gather, is to find out if the dog will sort of be alarmed that someone has taken your thing and try to tell you about it. And from the sort of debriefing I got, I understood that the dogs do, in fact, react to this and that they go above and beyond for their owner as opposed to the stranger.
1: Uh, so, Lori, how close is that to what you're uh, actually doing and seeing there?
3: That's exactly right. I think mm-hmm. Teresa passed the, uh, the canine <laughs> cognition quiz there. Um, I did yeah, bite so someone, this, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is a study we're trying to see um, whether or not dogs are kind of motivated to inform us about stuff that we don't know about. Do they kind of realize which information we lack and which information we have? And so we, we did the setup with Mabel exactly as you saw described. Dogs are just sitting there watching a kind of everyday event. There's a person reading a book, either their human companion or just a stranger. And then what happens is that that person puts the book behind them. They can't see the book anymore. And then someone comes and kind of takes the book. It's as though the book is kind of stolen. Um, but it's stolen outside the person's view. And the question is, first, do dogs realize this? Do they understand that the person hasn't seen it? And the second thing is, are they motivated to try to deal with the situation? Um, do they try to alert their companion or this stranger? Do they try to go get the book back? And in, we're still, as you can see from the fact that um, we're still testing dogs on the study, we're kind of in the middle of it. But so far, what we're seeing is that dogs do seem to recognize that people are ignorant in this case. They tend to kind of head towards the door where the the book was stolen. Sometimes um, they vocalize towards their human companion to try to alert them. It seems like they're really showing these sorts of behaviors, suggesting that they're tracking what we don't know, and they're kind of motivated to help us. We, We designed the study kind of thinking of the old Lassie TV show, you know, where Lassie alerts, you know, oh, Billy's in the well and these things. But what we're finding is, you know, some of these anecdotes that we have about dogs really do seem to be what dogs are capable of and what they're motivated to do.
1: Right, I mean, every few months in the news, you know, you read about some dog who was uh, oh, who became aware of a fire or something like that, and got the owner out. Well, one thing that we do know, Laura, is that if you really aggressively train a dog to do that, so we're asking whether the dog can make a cognitive jump, where the dog can sort of say, "I have access to knowledge that this other that the person doesn't have," which is a pretty complicated jump, too. You know, I know this thing, this other organism that I care about doesn't know this thing. Uh, it's important that I communicate this thing. I mean, that, that's a pretty big thing. But we know from guide I mean, guide dogs do an amazing thing, right, which is they they are trained to understand that a you know a limb sticking out of a tree that wouldn't ever hit them in the head could conceivably hit the person that they're guiding in the head. So what they have to do really is put themselves a little bit in the body of the person that they're guiding and think, oh, yeah, his head is high enough. It would hit that branch. To me, that's a really remarkable cognitive feat for the dog to do. That's part of the training. I guess what you're asking is if you don't train the dog, will it, can it do those things anyway?
3: Right. Do dogs kind of spontaneously pick up on what we're paying attention to? And and as you said, this is a pretty sophisticated ability Um, in classic work in developmental psychology. This kind of awareness of other people's perspective in, in some cases doesn't even emerge till around four years of age, right? So our dogs are kind of smartly taking into account what other people perceive and realizing that it might be different from their own perspective.
1: This perfectly sets up what I was gonna ask Teresa about. One of your observations after going down to the lab for one day was it seemed as though they were studying some of the kinds of things that Piaget or somebody might have studied about babies.
4: Right, there's one specific test that Maybell took part in where a, a toy sort of goes across a stage and then disappears behind, a. it's not a curtain, but I don't know, a blockade of some sort. And then when that blockade is removed, it's not there, and they want to see, you know, how long the dog looks and if they understand that it should have been there. And I've seen uh, similar tests done with kids. Well, they were sort of testing whether or not young babies can count, but it was almost the exact same test. And I was like, oh, my dog is a two-year-old child.
1: Well, I mean, Gloria <laughs> and, and Santos, I mean, mm-hmm. Piaget would call some of that object permanence, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, if, right. you, if you can't see an object, is it still there? Mm-hmm.
3: That's correct. Yeah. And and that's a really nice observation of a lot of the methods we use. So one trick to studying dogs is that it's harder than studying humans because most humans, you can kind of ask them, you know, where do you think the object is? You can't do that with dogs. So one of the methods we use a lot in the center is information about how the dogs are processing events through how they watch them. And one thing we know from human infants is that human infants will tend to look at events more that are surprising. So if you were to see an object disappear, say, you might find that surprising and kind of stare at the event for a long time. So functionally, a lot of the studies that dogs do are a kind of funny version of a doggy magic trick. We sort of sit the dogs down and they get to watch this little show um, where objects disappear or people behave in weird ways. We're trying to see whether or not the dog's think about those events as weird, and we kind of measure how long they look at them. So we'll have to go back and check Mabel's exact performance. We have to time it, you know, down to frames and mm-hmm. seconds to see how she did on that one.
1: One of the things you're also trying to look at, Lori Santos, is whether or not dogs know when they've done something wrong. So, so tell us how you try to figure that out.
3: Yeah, so this is, um, we're doing some follow-ups now on classic work that was done not at the Yale Canine Cognition Center, but at the lab of Alexandra Horowitz, um, who works at Barnard College. Um, And and she did what I thought was a really lovely study. She asked this question, are dogs really feeling guilty when you see them behaving guilty? Now, you can look on the internet and see very funny videos of guilty-seeming dogs, you know, doing these things with the sort of puppy-dog eyes, kind of looking up, feeling bad. And her question was, Are dogs really feeling bad or are they kind of reacting to something else and so here was her cute study she brought dogs into the lab with their companions had the companions um, tell the dog not to take a piece of food so they don't take this piece of food don't take this piece of food and then the dog's companion and the experimenters leave and so one of two things are going to happen either the dog's going to be good and not eat the food or the dog is going to be bad and you know succumb and eat this food the interesting thing though is that then what Horwitz did is that she told the dog's companion different things. So half the dog's companions were told your dog did it did great, you know, he didn't eat the food, it was great, or a dog's companions were told, you know, your dog kind of messed up he ate the food when he wasn't supposed to. And the question is, when the dog reacts to his companion kind of coming back in the room, what's driving whether or not he gives the guilty look? Is it what he did, like whether he did something wrong or not, or is it what the companion thinks he did and what she found remarkably was that it has nothing to do with what the dog did there was no difference between the dogs who were bad and good what seemed to predict the extent to which they showed these guilty behaviors was what the companion thought in other words if your companion thinks you did something bad you show the guilty look and I love this study in part because it tells us that sometimes our intuitions about what dogs know. Are a little bit off, you know. So, sometimes we get the question: "You know, why do we need this canine center?" You know, I obviously know what my dog's thinking. And I think sometimes our intuitions are dead on, right? I mean, we get them; they're, they're, we're built to get them. But sometimes we really do need the science to kind of probe a little deeper to see if we're missing something really important about the cues they're giving us.
1: Well, and it seems to me that one of the things that we learn over and over again is that the cues that we're giving dogs, or any animal, uh, are really, really important, more so than we think. And sometimes of course, the cues that we're giving dogs and animals are cues we're not even aware that we're giving. That takes us back yet again to the clever Hans fallacy, where the trainer was, in fact, communicating with the the horse in all kinds of ways that the trainer was not aware of. But the, the way that dogs look to us for cues so Teresa you were also uh, or Maybell your Mm -hmm. dog was involved in an experiment down at the Yale Cognition Center that involved a bucket and or pails that had treats underneath them or explain that one
4: yes well I'm not allowed to actually watch what's going on but what they explain I have to put my head down and sit in the corner so what I believe happened was there was a bucket with a treat under it and then a bucket that the experimenter sort of made a fuss over and pointed to and showed her and she was able to see that there was no treat in it but when I was instructed to let her go, she still went to the bucket that the person had made a fuss over. And this shocked me because she is a food thief and she <laughs> smells it from very far away and she plots against me to get to it. I would like you to study that because she I'm, I swear <laughs> she plans ahead to be able to steal food. And she's got a crazy, crazy nose. So I would have thought she would have been like, yeah, whatever, lady, there's food over there. But she apparently did not.
1: So, yeah, Lori, this- yeah, yeah, tell us about this. <laughs>
3: Yeah. It's kind of a central question we're interested in, right? Dogs have kind of two ways of getting information, right? They're own sensory systems, what they can smell, and what they can see, and so on. And then it's the cues that we give them. And one of the questions we're interested in is, which do they prioritize? Now, you might assume it would be in an animal's best interest to prioritize, you know, their own sensory information. But since dogs have grown up with us so closely, it might be that the cues we give them about what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to look, and so on, are especially profound. And so we have a a whole series of studies trying to look at which kinds of cues dogs are prioritizing. Are they kind of watching our actions and what we intend and what we're pointing at? Or are they using kind of their their own cues and their own problem-solving skills? And this is another one of the classic findings in the field of canine cognition. It's that one of the things that dogs might be built to do is to use us as good social tools to get information. And so so here's a version of a study. You bring dogs and, and wolves in, and you give them a problem where they're kind of opening a puzzle to get food. And on the first few trials, it's very easy. Dogs and wolves can do it. And then all of a sudden you make it impossible. They just are not going to be able to figure it out. And the question is, what do they do? Well, what you find is that wolves are really good problem solvers. They have tons of grit. They go at it with trial and error. They do all this stuff to try to figure it out. Very, very motivated to do that. What do dogs do? Well, in the first instance of trouble, they give the puppy dog eyes to their human companion. And, you know, you could interpret that as an evidence of like, well, maybe dogs aren't as smart problem solvers as wolves. Or you could say, no, they're great problem solvers. They know exactly how to get the food. They come to us for help. And so this is why we're kind of interested in whether dogs will kind of prioritize information that people give them, even sometimes over their own knowledge of the situation.
1: It also raises a question that, that came up uh, for us on uh, Facebook a little bit when I put this question out, and it's something also that Teresa got interested in. Because, so one of the ways that we understand all of this, I mean, you're talking right now what's the relationship between the dog and the companion? What does the dog think the companion is? And there, are, of course, have been some dog obedience programs and dog obedience books that say, well, you effectively have to be the alpha wolf, right? You have to be the alpha dog. You have to be the leader of the pack. That's really what the dog thinks is happening right now. This is a pack. There's a leader. It's you. Does that, based on the, all the experiments that you've done, but also the ones that you know about, uh, Lori, does that ring true? Is, is that what's happening? Is the dog, for example, who can't solve the food-getting problem now looking to the alpha dog for help? Or is it a different kind of relationship, or don't we know?
3: I think that's what we're still trying to figure out. I mean, one possibility is that dogs treat it a lot like a parent-child relationship. Um, and by that I mean children are looking to adults not just to kind of command them what to do or to be dominant to them in a kind of alpha sense, but really to give them information. their cues in the world about what we should be doing and how we should figure things out, it's how we learn what stuff is, you know, what our norms are, how we should behave, how to solve problems. And our hypothesis right now is that dogs might see their relationship that way as well. So when they hear a command or when they get a cue from us, They're thinking of it not like, oh, I have to do that. It's some imperative. Really, they're thinking in an informational way. In other words, oh, she's telling me something. I'm getting communicated some information. That's what humans do. Why we have language, why we have radio shows, we're kind of communicating information. And a lot of these studies are built to try to figure out whether or not that's what dogs are getting from us as well. Do they understand this as information being communicated or are they merely kind of saying like, oh, this is the dominant one. I should kind of do what they tell me. Okay, so I think the jury's still out.
1: Teresa, are you Maybell's alpha dog?
4: It's very hard to tell. I, I, I'm i not real clear on that. She's a pretty well, just naturally well-behaved dog, so I don't have to go around telling her what to do. But well, she, you, you
1: sent me an article <laughs> that sort of attempted to debunk that whole idea anyway, right?
4: Yeah, well, I, I've definitely heard before that, you know, this idea of relating wolves very closely to dogs is just not fair because if you leave dogs to their own, like, say, some abandoned junkyard somewhere, they don't actually form a pack structure that's exactly like wolves they don't. There's not an alpha uh, male and female, and they're the only ones who are allowed to breed, and everybody else just has to do what they say. It's it's not nearly as close to that wolf relationship, and so sort of a question in training. You know, you can either have a communicative relationship, like Lori is saying, uh, based through positive feedback, or you can be Caesar Milan and go around trying to dominate your dog all the time.
1: Well, yeah, Caesar mm-hmm. does believe that the dogs after Katrina formed packs and all that kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> So, Laurie, I have to ask a question that uh, comes up in my ho- household quite a lot. And I don't know, I'm, I'd be surprised if Yale Canine Cognition Center has been studying this, but somebody must have, and, and perhaps you know, our dog Seamus dreams quite actively. You know, I mean, he's, we see him running. Sometimes we get in the middle of the night, hear him kicking the wall or something because he's <laughs> mm-hmm. having some dream. Well, do we know anything at all? Does anybody know anything at all about dog dreaming? Is it just a canine equivalent of human dream, dreaming, or is, is, is it something else? Do we know anything about it?
3: Yeah. So we know that dogs dream. I mean, just behaviorally, right? We can see evidence that they're showing the eye movements and they seem to be experiencing something. But the question of dog dreaming is one of these domains that it's really hard to study in animals. Because the real question we want to answer is, do they dream like us? Do they have these storylines? You know, Do they show up at junior high without their clothes on? Or you know, all the crazy dreams that we have and nightmares and so on. And that's really hard for us to ask because it's really asking about a dog's subjective experience, and that gets tricky. The answers we know so far is that, you know, neurally, it sure looks like human dreaming. Behaviorally, when you're watching it, when you're watching a dog sleeping, sure looks like human dreaming. But to answer the subjective question is actually much trickier than it seems.
1: No, I think it would be. The other thing I wanted to ask was, you know, sort of back to the purpose of the Yale Canine Cognition Center is... I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but everything that we've been saying today has sort of triggered a thought in me, which is one of the things that philosophers and neuroscientists are trying to understand right now is human consciousness. How does human consciousness work? You know, and, and as we begin to look towards artificial intelligence, how can our artificial intelligence be invented that mirrors the qualities of human consciousness, you know, that experiences qualia the same way? Is there, I mean, the dog's world would seem to be an interesting middle ground, right? I mean, we're looking, you're looking at the consciousness Kind of in quotes of a somewhat less complex mind. Like, how does that consciousness work? Does the dog know it's a dog? Does the dog know its name? Does it? I mean, it's, is that one of the things that you're really trying to figure out? What What's the conscious state of this dog?
3: I think what we're looking at is how the dogs consciously process information. And that's the kind of thing we can answer pretty well in the sense that we can look at the kinds of specific decisions dogs make. We can kind of better understand the strategies they're using, kind of how they're processing the information. The thing that's tricky for us is to know how they do it, this idea of qualia, kind of what it feels like to be a dog. And this has been a classic question in the field of uh, philosophy. The famous philosopher Thomas Nagel.
1: What um, it's like to be a bat what it's
3: like to be a bat. You know, he could have just as easily written what it's like to be a dog. These are the things that we still struggle to find good methods to look at. And, you know, we look into available technologies to try to get at this, um, using technologies to measure things like heart rate. Um, There's uh, new work by the neuroscientist Greg Burns that's starting to use um, fMRI technology, so these brain imaging techniques to study the dog brain. But even all the best technologies we have don't have great measures of consciousness just yet. Um, what we use in humans is, is language, mm-hmm. um, and that makes it tricky for non-linguistic animals to show us anything of the same sort.
1: Right, and we still don't understand human not, consciousness, not even remotely, even with that tool of language to explore it more deeply. Well, how about a basic question um, as we head towards the end of this conversation? Does Maybell know that her name is Maybell Laurie, or do, might Maybell simply be a way of getting her attention?
3: I think we're still trying to figure that one out in dogs. One thing we do know is that some dogs do seem to process words in a much more sophisticated way than I think researchers expected. Um, in particular, they seem to realize that words refer to particular objects, and they seem to learn novel words in some of the same ways as human children do. They seem to understand, for example, that if they hear a novel term, like if I were to give a dog that Mabel the term "blicket," for example, and she didn't know what "blicket" meant, that it has to kind of go with a new object. Like new words kind of map onto new objects, and this is cool because it's exactly the same kind of rule that human children use when they're learning new words. So I think we're still trying to figure out exactly how dogs think about the words they hear, particularly their own name, and also whether there are important differences in how dogs do that, because some super well-trained dogs may process these words in a very different way than dogs who haven't had much training and are just kind of hearing it incidentally. So that's yet yet another still open question in the field of canine cognition.
1: All right. We've been talking to Laurie Santos, who knows her name is Laurie Santos, and she knows <laughs> that she's professor of psychology at Yale and director of the Yale Canine Cognition Center. Also with us is a journalist and canine observer, Teresa Kramer. She knows her name is Teresa Kramer. We don't know if Mabel knows that she's Mabel. Thanks to both of you. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back with a question. What if you don't like dogs that much and you have to work in a dog-friendly office? i before we begin our final segment, let me just say that today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Alison Ehrenreich, and we had all kinds of help from all kinds of other people, you know, our parents, our teachers, stuff like that. Um, all right, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about, actually, it's sort of one of the great American taboos, and I didn't really realize that or ever think about it until I read this piece by Corina Zappia. Uh, it is uh, called I Was an Amazon Chew Toy. It was written in the All. It's just a terrific piece. After we're done with this interview, everybody go off and read the piece because we won't be able to cover everything. But one of the things that she covers in this is this notion that one of the few things you're not allowed to do or say here in America in 2015 is, I don't like dogs that much, or I'm not that comfortable around dogs. So we're going to start there. Karina Zappia, welcome to our show. Thank you. And and I want to just start there with that. So you've got some allergies, and you had some negative experiences as a very young child with a dog who liked you a little bit too much, right?
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh, I don't know if you want to elaborate. It's okay to say hump on public radio. I, I looked it up.
0: Humbug, okay. No, no um, hump. You know, I, when I was around nine, I was traumatized by my cousin's unneutered dog, Max. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I used to visit them in Florida, and he would ignore the rest of the family, run over to me, mm-hmm. and initiate sex with my leg. Right. <laughs> and... um I really do think it was because I looked a little like a dog, I had, my hair was black, when I crouched down on the floor, I was about the same height as a dog, and I swear, I, you know, my cousin just always would let it go on for a little bit too long, so I think I was just kind of traumatized by that experience in general. Um, I do have a little bit of a dog allergy, I'm much more allergic to cats, but to be honest, I've just, I've never been a big dog person and uh i just I do feel like it's a little hard in this day and age um to admit as such you know. Um, well, I think I,
1: you can do it. There's, sort of, there's one way that you can do it, and I, I'm guessing it's not in your personality, is to be hyper-militant about it. I do know people who are like, dogs, dogs are disgusting. Get that dog away from me. And I mean, they do it so aggressively and with such braggadocio and boldness that they somehow or other gain the, the energy upper hand. But I think you, you try to deal with this in a polite and deferential way. And one of the things I, you say is the dog owners kind of sniff you out right away.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do that sad air pat, you know, <laughs> where, you know, you never really reach the dog's head. And once you say something like, oh, I don't really like dogs, they just, you know, there are some people, their their expectation is that it's, a, it's actually a slight against them mm-hmm. or that I don't like other dogs, but I haven't met their dog, their dog is actually super special, it farts rainbows, you know. I mean, and I've just never been a dog person. It's not personal. I just don't want to make out with your dog today. <laughs> Please don't hate me. <laughs> and so that's always kind of how I've felt. And when they think, "Oh, you don't like dogs," it's like, "How can you not like my dog?"
1: I think there's how- also there's some imputation uh, of th- that you lack joie de vivre or something like you know, or there's almost something unAmerican. You know, you what do you mean you don't like dogs? I mean, dogs are just part of our culture, right?
0: Yeah, for some reason, in some ways, it's okay not to be into kids, but then, like, of course, you must be into dogs or cats. You know, there's a lot of people who prefer animals to human beings, but to not at least like animals just means you're, like, this cruel, cold, heartless human being. I mean, I kind of say it in the essay, they're like, well, what does that mean? You know, when a dying baby's in the street, you kick it till it fits in the gutter. It's like, how cruel can you be not even to like dogs, you know? Right.
1: You were probably cheering when Cecil the lion got shot last week. you know. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. I mean, and I don't believe in, you know, animal cruelty. It's just, just never been my thing, you know? But some people don't even trust others, you know, people who aren't dog
1: lovers. All right. So so you went to work in a place, a very famous place, that was uh, about to uh, institute a very dog-friendly office policy. I should say, just sort of cards on the table, that for many years in my previous radio job, I did bring my dog to work every day, but my dog was, he was sort of sequestered in a radio studio with me, and he didn't particularly, he wasn't very interested in other people, uh, so he didn't really bother anybody, except that... There was one person. It happened to be the very famous basketball player Rebecca Lobo, with whom, he, for some reason, some chemical reason, he had pretty much the same reaction to her that Max had to you. So that <laughs> was a huge, huge problem, and uh, we were still dealing with that. But so you were working for Amazon at the time. Amazon right. was about to move to this fabulous, storied new campus, and right. one element of this was going to be that people's dogs were just going to be very welcome and very everywhere. Right.
0: Right. Right um you know i will say that not as many people brought dogs as i thought and you know i knew the people around me who were bringing dogs they kind of knew how i felt so they were very considerate about it but of course the thing is is that you can't always plan on a considerate employee there was an employee after me who i would hear about from other you know coworkers and friends who were like oh my god that you know dog we're expected to take care of it when he goes to meetings, you know, the dog isn't potty trained, that kind of thing. So you're really relying on the constant consideration of others. And also, you know, there were rules against, you know, non-potty trained dogs, but who's always going to police that all the time? I mean, more than anything, I just resented the idea that I even had to have a documented allergy with, an, you know, a letter from my allergist. Uh, I just think it should be – I'm not against the idea of having dogs in – Offices. I'm against the idea that there's not an alternative. There, I mean, if you decide as a company you wanna, you know, you wanna make it dog friendly, you need to have an alternative for people who might not necessarily be into that. You right. need to have dog-free floors.
1: Yeah, and so there were all these other different um, possible accommodations, including uh, at one point you were shown, I think, a map of the new Amazon campus, and <laughs> there was this building, this sort of leper colony, right? That was sort of off. Away from all the other buildings, then that was where people like you were going to be put?
0: No, that was for the severely allergic. All right. I was lightly allergic. They knew I wasn't going to, you know, collapse on the floor or whatever if a dog was near me. But yeah, they wanted me to bring my allergy form back to my allergist to see how allergic I was, because so, the severely allergic were being, I mean, when she showed me that, I was like, oh my God, they're being sequestered on the like edge of campus. It was blocks away from where everybody in my office was. And, you know, I, I did end up like, they did end up letting me stay in a dog-free room. It was the only windowless room in the entire floor. I was like, am I in the coffee closet now? I don't know. Um, and unfortunately, four other people had to share the room with me.
1: Right, and so th- and and in the uh, the article fascinating, just in the sense that there are all this all this paperwork that you had to fill out and all these questionnaires yeah. that you had to answer. And, and there seemed to be contained, no, it wasn't. Seemed to be there was obviously contained in the wording of some of these questions a, a kind of nudge in the direction of relaxing one's own attitude about dogs. Right? There are all these. Well, you know, it's all going to be a shared HVAC system. Are you sure this patient is really going to be compromised? In other words, uh, you get the feeling that in the way that these questions were worded, there was a, um, an almost a desire to nudge you, your allergist, and anybody else answering these questions in the direction of going along with the flow of dogs.
0: Yeah, it was like, you know, is it safe for you know me to be in an environment for a limited period of time? If so, please state the maximum of ta- amount of time that your patient may safely work continuously in such an environment. And so it's almost kind of like, A game of endurance, you know, where they're trying to break you down. Are you allergic? How allergic? Can they be on your floor on your side of the building in the same room in the same elevator? You know, what about your desk? What if we just set them next to you and then whisk them away? Is that okay? You know, it's just Mm -hmm. like I shouldn't even – you shouldn't even have to prove that. If you don't want to be around dogs all day, if you don't want to, you know, do conference calls with dogs in the same room, I mean, Mm -hmm. it should be your choice. I think they have to accommodate for all types of employees.
1: Right. And it it seemed as though – I mean, I think the other thing about dogs is that dogs are a little bit unpredictable. I mean, you can leash them. You can do stuff like that. But um, it it seems unlikely that I could guarantee – if I had my dog here that I could guarantee that you wouldn't have encounters with my dog, right? Dogs get loose and maybe they, they almost unfailingly run into the one place that you don't want them to run into.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and I felt kind of bad, because everybody had heard about because I didn't, you know, I made a fuss about it, and my, you know, coworkers, when they ran into my room, you know, the dog would run into my room, they're like, oh, no, I'm so sorry, Karina, and I was like, oh, no, I'm like this this doggy monster. Yeah, yeah.
1: Have, you, have you since then sort of uh, thought about this at all? I mean, in other words... Um yeah, I, I totally respect the fact that you're not comfortable with dogs and that you're honest about it. But it seems as though you pay a pretty huge social price, uh, not only up in your sinuses, but just sort of in the way that you're understood by people around you. I mean, have you have you thought about the next time this comes up, maybe concealing it even more, like um, in a work environment, yeah, or or I mean, you know, maybe I don't know. I'm sure it comes up in social situations too. Do you still kind of either try to disguise the fact that you're not super comfortable with dogs or in a very apologetic way let on. I mean, how do you handle this situation now, having been through all this?
0: I will say, I mean, for people who don't know me as well, who haven't read the essay, I kind of do this like, oh, 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 that's your dog, okay, you know, and you kind of do that polite smile. Um, and sometimes I prefer, I prefer not to say I'm a dog hater. I I like to call myself a pet neutral. I just think, you know, I think there are other people around like me who are just kind of pet neutral. And that's okay.
1: Did you, in fact, uh, when the, when the piece ran in the all, I didn't read, I'm not even sure what the all does about comments or whatever, but I I just read your piece. I didn't read comments. Did you wind up either in that form or in some other context hearing from other people who either were or were not like you?
0: You know, I'm always a little scared of comments. Me too. (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, Because I do want to continue as a personal essayist. But um, I I did, you know, I read some that were supportive. And, you know, some people, um, like some of my coworkers, you know, who liked dogs, but they were just, you know, they understood not wanting to be around them constantly in a workplace. Um, But I would like to find other... I'm going to call us pet neutrals. I would like to find other pet neutrals out there. I I just I do think we exist, and we're we're not all monsters.
1: No, not at all. And it, the other thing that strikes me is that as corporations become more globalized and as the workforce becomes more globalized and and you have sort of people thrust together on, on a campus like that one who are not necessarily from the U.S. I mean, there are different attitudes about dogs in all kinds of cultures. If you go to Europe, dogs are, if anything, more uh, it, the, 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 not only they are they're more tolerated and they're more included. And, I mean, it's just not uncommon to be in a pretty nice restaurant in Paris and see somebody sitting there with their dog. Dogs just get to go everywhere in Europe. But if you go to other parts of the world, it's just not necessarily expected that dogs will be places. And even if you go to other parts of the United States, um, dogs are often considered much more outdoor animals. They're not so inside. I mean, it just sort of surprises me that a company would expect everybody to go along with this when you consider that the workforce is getting more heterogeneous, more diverse, not more homogeneous.
0: Right. I I mean, I think companies, particularly large tech companies, are all trying to sweeten the pot these days with all kinds of perks. You know, like, look, we have a keg kegerator in the office. We can totally rage at the office while we write code all night. Um, Look, we have free cafeterias. But I think you just have to wonder, like, what all these perks are sometimes trying to hide. And sometimes I think it's the fact that you will be living at your job. Mm. So they're trying to make the job place more homey, but no can ever really take the place of a decent work-life balance.
1: Right. So, in other words, uh, you might be working 60, 70 hours a week and giving up your weekends, which would make it difficult for you to have a dog in the first place, particularly a dog that's young and that you're training. But guess what? You can just bring the dog to work. And
0: exactly. Exactly. It's like the free dry cleaning at Google or whatever I keep hearing about. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all, We'll take care of all of it for you here. But, you know, nothing can replace being at home on your couch with your dog. You know?
1: Oh, absolutely. So, uh, Karina Zappia, I'm glad that you're in a happier space now. Uh, and, I th- I, and I think dog neutral is a very good term, too. There's no reason why you should have to cop to not liking dogs. You're dog neutral. You don't seek them out, uh, but you don't uh, reject them completely.
0: We just want to each live our lives.
1: Right. (laughs) You want your own space, and you want space for them. Thanks for joining us today. But once again, this piece is called I Was an Amazon Chew Toy. Uh, It's still up there on The All. The All, by the way, is spelled A-W-L for people who don't know that. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Thanks a lot, Colin.
3: Who let the dogs out?